Hello, everyone, and welcome back to People, Parasites, and Plagues, a podcast aimed at delivering information about the fascinating pathogens among us from the professionals who study them. I am David Peterson. And I am Liliana Salvador, your hosts for today's episode. The University of Georgia's graduate school has a long history of producing bright researchers and professors who go on to be leaders in their respective fields. Today, the graduate school is led by a researcher whose passion for seed pathology blossomed into a distinguished career in higher education. Our guest today is Dr. Ron Walcott, a researcher in the Department of Plant Pathology, the Vice Provost for Graduate Education and Dean of the Graduate School at the University of Georgia. His research interests include seed pathology, plant pathology, and bacteriology. So Ron, in general, our podcast has a focus on human pathogens, but given how strong the plant pathology program is at UGA, we are delighted to have you with us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I have to admit that prior to looking up your research interests, whenever I thought of plant pathology, I thought of diseases of actual grown plants and not of seeds. So what inspired you to study seed-borne pathogens? So I, I started my, my training in, at Iowa State University in the Midwest, and there there was a lot of interest in seed-borne pathogens that might introduce organisms into crop production. So seeds are produced in many instances for in, in areas apart from where crops are produced and sometimes in different countries. And so early on, I had a chance to work at the, the Iowa State University Seed Science Center that spends a lot of effort and time around understanding how seeds become infected with pathogens, how they're spread and how they further contribute to disease epidemics once those seeds are planted. So in that, in that uh, center, everyone was focused on ways to limiting the spread of pathogens on seeds. And it, it sort of helped me to realize how important and how uh, critical it was to prevent the spread of pathogens. And again, it's by humans producing seeds and spreading them around the world, but also natural movement of seeds can lead to the um, natural spread of pathogens, I became quite fascinated by how important it was for moving pathogens that were non-native into areas and the devastation that be can be caused because there's no sort of natural limitation on the spread of those pathogens once they got into ideal environments like those we might find in the Southeast. So yeah, it just was a matter of being proximal to people that were interested in seed-borne pathogens. Ron, I confess that I don't know much about pathogens that affect seeds. Could you tell us a, a little bit of, or give us a few examples of what type of pathogens exist? Oh, so of course, uh, I'm happy to. So the main pathogen groups, unlike human pathogens, include those uh, diseases caused by fungi. And of course, there are some caused by viruses and bacteria as well, but fungi are by, by far the most important ones. And so I, interestingly, don't spend a lot of time studying fungi. I study bacterial diseases that are on seeds. And there's one in particular called Acetivorax citrulli that is a pathogen of cucurbits, including watermelons, melons, pumpkins, you name it. And there's also viral diseases, some very devastating ones, and one in particular is called cu cucumber green model mosaic virus, CGMMV. And this is a, a quarantine pathogen that has not been discovered in the United States widely, and there's, it's going to be quite devastating. So again, organisms that don't naturally occur here and wouldn't naturally arrive here on their own can arrive on seeds. So I spend most of my time studying Acetivorax citrulli, which is a bacterial pathogen. And my interests include 
how does a pathogen get on the seed, which is really interesting because a fruit becomes infected and the seeds are inside and then there's just this inadvertent contact between the infected tissue and the seed. But then there's some more sophisticated mechanisms by which the pathogen penetrates through the floral tissues. So it gets in through the, the stigma down into the style and then becomes embedded in the ovary during the process of pollination. And then the pathogen becomes embedded within the seed and is able to survive in the seed for upwards of 30 years. And then once the seed is planted and the seedling emerges, the pathogen infects the emerging tissue. So, so it's really fascinating in terms of how they go about doing this, where they survive. We still don't understand well how they're able to survive for such long periods of time in a desiccated seed. So to me, it's quite fascinating and we don't have all the tools that will allow us to study the, the exact, me exact mechanisms by which the pathogen re remains viable for, under those conditions, but, but it's ripe for exploration. That is indeed really fascinating. And as human disease-centric researchers, we are usually used to thinking about immune responses to diseases. What kinds of defenses do plants and their seeds have against these pathogens? Oh, yeah. So plants have lots of, well, in cases where resistance actually exists, plants have some very sophisticated mechanisms by which they can limit disease development. Um, you know, a, a, a classical response would be the hypersensitive response. And I'm going to make this pretty simple. Um, but in terms of there's, there's a resistance response, the pathogen can actually detect different elements of the, in the case of a bacterium or a fungus, whether it may be a cellular component or a protein that triggers the plant response. And it its most simple form, the pathogen, the, the plant can kill off the tissues around the infection point and thereby limit the spread of the pathogen. So we call it a hypersensitive response. We've learned that it's, it's quite sophisticated um, in some regards in terms of how the pathogen is detected, but then it's kind of simple in terms of killing everything, hoping that it limits the, the pathogen's development and spread in addition to killing off some plant tissues. So that's a simple way of looking at it, but there's many more elaborate ways in which the plant detects the presence of the pathogen. And it's even more sophisticated because for pathogens in which they've found ways to infect the host, they know ways of shutting down the host response. So it's this arms race of the pathogen coming up with a way of attacking the plant, whether it's pretty gross by the use of enzymes or more sophisticated in terms of type three secreted effectors, in the case of bacteria or different types of effectors or peptides in the plant, detecting those and figuring out ways to shut them down, right? And then in turn, the pathogen developing more sophisticated ways to shut down the plant's host response. That's starting to sound really cumbersome and detailed, but it reflects this arms race that occurs between the plant and the pathogen. And I will say that plants have some very effective and very nasty ways of limiting pathogens and that thereby they, they survive. They don't run away, they, they can't move, but yet they have these very effective ways of limiting organisms from generally attacking them. I'll also say that most microorganisms cannot attack plants, right? They, they lack the capacity to attack plants. And of those that, uh, that can attack plants, plants have some, some very effective ways of limiting them. And in cases where they don't, that's where we get diseases that are difficult to control. And indeed, in the case of fungi, we use fungicides to control disease epidemics. But in the case of viruses and bacteria, the things that we have to effectively control them are very limited. And that, that's why it's important for us to continue to look at the mechanisms of virulence and then trying to augment the plant's resistance through breeding or genetic modification. 
You know, that's really interesting because the, the defense mechanisms you describe in a general sense are similar to some of the things that humans and animals do. So they can recognize certain molecules on invaders. They have an innate response, which is just kind of kill everything. So that's, that's really interesting. So it's like conserve themes, um, even, even if the exact mechanisms are a little bit different. Yeah, I would agree with that, David. And, and, you know, I I think, so you might go around, I don't want to be your host, but why would you study plants instead of animals? And, and quite frankly, I think that, uh, that, that, you know, plants are really important for our survival. And I think it's actually, they're really cool in terms of how they go about doing things. And there's not enough of us studying plants and plant responses. And so that's a passion of mine. Saran, you mentioned some examples of the major seedborne pathogens. Are there major outbreaks or what, what are the effects of these on agriculture overall? Oh, the impacts are significant. And, and sort of, I'm, I'm glad to be here talking to you today because I want to highlight a lot of times people will focus on, you know, human epidemics, you know, of course, COVID is taking everybody's attention. But, you know, we have some outbreaks in history that have been quite dramatic. The Irish potato famine was one that comes to mind. And uh, I taught a class where I, I bring up these these epidemics to give us a sense of what are the, the major problems or the things we do that facilitate or allow these things to happen. So the Irish potato famine was a long time ago in the 1800s and it was avoidable, right? So we had a monoclonal planting of potatoes that were susceptible to this pathogen and really a, a population that was heavily dependent on potato and it led to this disaster. Some may say, well, that would never happen today. We know so much about diseases. We know so much about everything. And unfortunately, that's not the case. We continue to have disease outbreaks, both in artificial, what I would call uh, production systems and sort of natural systems. We have things like uh, chestnut blight is another historic disease that uh, ravaged uh, American chestnuts here in the United States. Uh, It seems like... (laughs) Almost every year now, there's something that's threatening the production agriculture. We've had things like sudden oak death that's been threatening uh, natural plant stands like in, the, in California. And sometimes there's a threat to the, the southeastern seaboard, well, the southeastern um, region of the United States. And then there's lots of diseases, again, that they, they crop up every now and again. And we've had things like southern corn leaf blight, again, in the 60s that threatened corn production. And again, this is a disease that we knew all along, but because we were using new technology to make hybrid corn, we opened up a vulnerability in the production that led to the disease outbreak. So I would say routinely what happens in production agriculture is that we try to find ways to increase production efficiency. And by doing so through monoculture or through In the case of the disease I spend a lot of my time studying, we do a lot of transplanting. So we would take plants and we would grow them in a greenhouse for for a certain period of time until they reach a certain stage with high humidity, high plant density. And then once a disease gets in or pathogen gets in, it runs rampant throughout that population. And sometimes it's not detectable in terms of visible symptoms, but then we'll plant these infected plants, asymptomatic infected plants in the field. And boom, we've created that outbreak ourselves because of the practices that we use. So it would seem easy for us to say, well, stop using these practices and we would limit the disease outbreaks, but it's not so simple, right? So you might say, well, plant only the resistant cultivars. Well, the demand is what drives what we plant. So some might say, well, we want this particular cultivar of grapes or we want this particular cultivar of apple. Our ability to to have resistance in those cultivars is not readily available. And so there's a mismatch between, yes, we have some resistant grapes, 
but they're not in demand. Or yes, we have some resistant uh, watermelon or, or pumpkin, but that's not what the market is, is looking for. So there's a little bit of ed education, a little bit of sense of maybe your watermelons or your apples won't look perfect or won't look great, but they'll have resistance and we won't have to use chemicals to control the diseases. And therefore we could, we could agree with that. But most people aren't in, involved in, in agriculture, right? So they don't understand this and what they want, what they want. So they want, yes. you know, golden delicious and they want these types of cultivars. <laughs> they don't realize that in order to produce that, we need to do these other things like spray pesticides or produce in certain areas. So it's a little bit complicated in terms of the demand drives uh, what the production practices are. So you alluded earlier to the fact that seeds get transported around the world, which does seem to bring up the issue that a disease could get transported with them. Are there examples where the disease has been introduced through? Oh, yeah. So, so first of all, I would say it happens a lot, but it's hard to track. So a couple of years ago, more than a couple, I guess, there was a wheat disease, Carnell Bunt, that it's known to be in, in Asia and we didn't want it to come to the United States. So there was a lot of effort. There was a lot of, when it did show up, they would shut down production and try to eradicate it and keep it from coming in. There's another disease that was in Florida. There are two I'm gonna mention. There's Wang Long Bean that affects citrus. And it was, of course, started, it's also called Golden Dragon. And it's a, it's a bacterial disease that is vectored by an insect. And it was, introduced into to Florida. There was a lot of quarantine efforts and there was concern about it reaching California where most of the citrus production is. And indeed it was introduced. And then there's also a disease called citrus canker. So we have lots of examples of these things being in Brazil or in Asia. We know it's there. We're trying our best to, to keep things out by quarantine and inspections and embargoes on crops produced in certain areas. But David, ultimately in most instances, they end up getting introduced and then there's a struggle to manage these things once they're introduced. So it's very difficult to keep these pathogens out because of the international trade and movement of plant material. Ron, building on that, and, and you mentioned that there are some interventions that are possible to do to prevent the or reduce the spread of seed-borne diseases. Could you tell us a little bit about those specific interventions here in the U.S. or in any other part of the world? Oh, yeah. So, so amongst the seed people that study plant diseases, there's lots of efforts to to implement seed health testing. So for example, if you're in Italy or if you're in Chile and you have a shipment of seeds that you've produced for the US market, and you know we know that we have diseases that we don't want introduced, you may have them, you may not. We will require that those seeds that are being shipped to the United States be tested by a certain protocol that is validated. So it might be a PCR test, polymerase chain reaction. It may be uh, plating out the pathogen to determine if, um, if it's present in the seeds. And of course, it relies heavily on sampling of the seeds and then processing the seed sample and testing it. And only after that test comes back positive is it allowable for that seed to be moved into the country. So again, trying to establish these protocols that are standard standardized. So everyone is testing the same way to make sure that seed health testing is that one barrier to prevent the movement of seeds. Now, how effective is it is variable. How, how standardized are the seed testing labs are doing this work? Uh, we've come to where we're using pretty sophisticated tools for detecting, extracting the pathogen and using DNA extraction and testing much like we do for COVID and, and human pathogens. But sampling is the key issue. So how good is the sampling? How good is the extraction protocol? Can we rely on these tests to tell us that a lot is negative? How big is a lot? How representative is the sample? 
maybe I'm getting a little more technical than I need to hear, but essentially what it is, is trying to make sure that we've validated that, that, that seed sample has been tested and free of the, is not positive for the sample before it can be moved. As you can imagine, that's great. It's a barrier for trade, right? So Close down trade. It requires everyone to go through this bottleneck, and that becomes another sort of pull to make sure we can do this quickly and effectively, so we don't limit the ability to to have seeds available in different parts around the world. And sort of the consistency with which that is done is what allows for us to limit the movement of these pathogens, because if you introduce one of these pathogens from, say, Western China, where it's arid and it's dry, and you don't get disease development, but the pathogen is present and you introduce it here into Georgia, where it's wet and humid, you can have devastating epidemics or outbreaks that you don't normally see in that natural environment. And this is what often happens. So Ron, and following this uh, movement of pathogens across the world, and this might be a quite naive question, and I, I apologize if it is, but are any of these pathogens a concern for human or animal health? So I would say generally no, you know, generally no, but there are some pathogens, some human pathogens that do produce toxins that could be problematic for animal consumption. Fungi, some can produce mycotoxins that can affect and and feed and grain that can be problematic for animals. But I wanted to make the case that seeds for grain and seeds for planting are usually categorized differently. But indeed, there are some some bacteria that can produce toxins that when consumed can be problematic. There are some grains that when stored inappropriately with too much moisture or too much heat that can have toxins produced by fungi that can be problematic even for humans, those exist. But for the most part, I think many of the plant pathogens aren't so much of a threat to to humans, except for extenuating or challenging situations. Ron, I want to move on to one of the other hats you wear here at UGA. Um, So just over a year ago, you were appointed Dean of the Graduate School right in the middle of the pandemic, which must have been an interesting time to step into that role. Indeed, indeed it was. You know, lots of things were moving, lots of policies that were shifting. And I'll tell you, David, the, the biggest priority for me and for us in the graduate school was to make sure that our graduate students can make this transition easily. Not only those who were coming to school during that challenging time, but those that were already here and having to transition to remote work and what it would mean for delaying them and those who were close to graduating, but were delayed. So quickly, we sort of pivoted to how do we support the students? How do we help them? What policies can we modify change, even temporarily, just help them um, navigate through these really unprecedented and and, and difficult times. We recognized how hard it was, and it it was clear for us what we needed to do in graduate school. We needed to modify our policies to meet the needs of the students. One of the main challenges we face in academia is that of achieving a diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment. What role does the graduate school play in meeting this challenge? Great. Thanks for that question. So admissions in graduate school is quite different than undergrad, as we all know. Admission decisions are made at the program level, and we facilitate the administrative process. However, we are keen to help with the recruitment of students by providing some incentives where possible to recruit um, students that are underrepresented in the discipline. But we're also very keen to help programs with best practices, how best to create a diverse pool, how best to holistically evaluate candidates to where 
you don't look at the typical easy to determine um, predictors like GRE, but you look at the student's ability to succeed in the in the discipline. And that's, you know, it, it's, it's easy to say, but it's harder to do. So it might be easy for you to say, well, oh, this student has a high GPA overall and has a high GRE, therefore they'll succeed. But if the student is coming from a program that maybe is quite different to the typical programs you recruit from, if you're not looking at the student holistically, you might miss students that be quite good in your programs. They just don't meet your standard metrics for, for acceptance. So what we really encourage in terms of best practices is looking at the students holistically, looking at their ability to overcome um, challenges and to be critical thinkers and solve problems, but to evaluate them in a fair, equitable, and in a way that predicts their ability to, to succeed in graduate school. I want to say that in graduate school, you know, your training and technical your technical training is really, really important. But I think most would agree that over, working in teams, right, overcoming challenges and being resilient, those are really the key elements of succeeding in your graduate school. And I wouldn't say that a student who isn't prepared academically to, to succeed, you, you could substitute that. That's not what we're saying. But indeed, a student who knows how to overcome challenges or who knows how to seek out resources, who knows how to work with professors to gain skills and techniques and troubleshoot, those ones are the ones that are going to survive and succeed in graduate school. How do we measure that? I don't think a GRE measures that on its own. I think you need to look at the other pieces. What challenges has a student overcome? Have they done work in a lab? Have they had successes that might predict their ability to thrive in this environment? And those require a lot of effort on the part of the admissions committee. We want to help them think about the best ways to select students from a broad range of backgrounds. And once we recruit them, the other pieces help them succeed. So while we don't make the decisions on who's accepted, we want to establish sort of best practices for going about building a, a diverse pool, creating opportunities to, to connect with minority serving institutions that can direct students to our programs. And so we have feeder relationships and I'm hesitant to use that term feeder and I wanna correct myself and say that they're not so much feeder relationships but partner relationships with minority serving institutions whereby they identify students that they, they have worked with and they think are well suited to our programs. We will provide centrally from the graduate school some, some support for those students to transition into to the programs here. So I think those are key things for us to, to help connect with schools that are preparing students that are interested in programs at, at the University of Georgia and also helping with best practices for supporting those populations once they get here. In the graduate school, we have a small unit that's called a Recruitment and Diversity Initiatives led by Dr. Lisa Sperling, and she works with programs on the recruitment piece, the retention piece, helping students when they come from different schools, different minority serving institutions to become acclimated to life here at University of Georgia and creating a community where they can succeed. So those are the things that we do in the graduate school that we, we hope are critical for recruiting and retaining and supporting a more diverse population um, across our programs. One of the issues we face in increasing diversity in the graduate student population is that sometimes it seems we don't get enough applicants from particular underrepresented groups. I understand that you've been involved in a grant for a career awareness, awareness program targeting both underrepresented undergraduates, but also high school students. So could you tell us some about that program? So I think when we, when we reach back, we really want to, um, to encourage, first of all, we want to make sure that students are aware of these pathways, right? So you have to reach back and go, well, we would assume that students know what they want to do and they have clear ideas and that might not be the case. And so I think it's critical for us to 
introduce students from different populations into the areas of research early on. And so um, at a different stage of my career, we were involved with a summer a research program for high school students that would come to the College of Agriculture where I was before. And David, I, I hope this is what you're alluding to, but we would bring the students onto campus and put them in labs, just like we do with graduate students and with undergraduates for REU programs, um, NSF uh, recruitment experiences for undergraduates. And even at the high school level, having these students in a lab with graduate students and PIs is really informative to their decision about is a career in science and research for me, right? So you get an independent project, um, six to eight weeks you work on the project, of course, is appropriate to the level of, of skill and, and knowledge the students have, but it's very transformative to have students working in a lab because I can see myself as a scientist, right? I, for a lot of underrepresented students, access to that space is not always easy. Indeed, even here in, in Athens, a lot of students that go to the local high schools drive by University of Georgia, but they don't really understand or know what happens on our campus and they don't have as much access. So programs like this get these students into the labs and it informs their identity. And the most important thing for them is to think of themselves as scientists, as researchers and see what that feels like. And then they can build confidence around that and then they can aspire to be a, to, to be a career scientist or a scholar. Without that, it becomes hard to say, well, I want to be a scientist, but it's hard for anyone who doesn't exist in that space to understand what it really means. So some students come in, they spend time in the lab, they really understand that science isn't one thing and you get it done and it's a eureka moment, but it's sort of planning and collecting data and revising the, the experiments and, and sort of collecting the data set, analyzing the data. And they come out of it either thinking, this is wonderful, I want to do this, or mm, <laughs> this is a little slow for me. Nonetheless, it informs not only the students, but it informs their family members who, in many instances, these are first-generation students, their parents can't inform them in terms of how to go into these directions. It gives them all a sense of what is it like? What does it feel like? And I can tell you as a first-generation scholar who went into science, it, it, it was important for me to also come to convince my mother that this was a reasonable <laughs> um, career choice to pursue because she had no idea. She, she you know, had to trust my decisions about that. And she would tell me, well, maybe you should go into medicine because that I know what that is. I, I can understand how you would succeed there. So it's important for these experience not, experiences not only to inform the students, but inform the, their loved ones, their family members, what this is about and, and what it means for them. So David, I hope I answered some of that question, those questions, but in terms of engagement, we think the earlier you engage students, the earlier you give them experiences around science, the more sort of they can create a, a sense of themselves as this is fun, I like this, this is exactly what I, what I thought it would be, and I'm encouraged to continue in this vein or this pathway. That to me sounds so much more powerful than simply having a faculty member go to a high school class and talk about their research and yeah. have most of the students tune them out. Uh, <laughs> I've done so. this too. I've done this too. And, and I'll tell you that, yes, the engagement is not as deep as, as you want it to be, but that also can be powerful, particularly if you can, like, for example, I would go to the Hillsman middle and where they would have science day. And I, I would talk to students about what it, it feels like, what it looks like to be a scientist. And of course, a lot of students, what they think of a scientist isn't what, you know, this is a podcast you might not know, but I'm African-American. And so they might not necessarily see a scientist looking like me. And I should also say, maybe in a more um, joking, I'm, I'm six feet, six inches tall. So again, you, you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say, well, that guy looks like a scientist. 
but it would give you a sense of, well, scientists can look anyway, right? And yeah. they can be any, in any shape and form. And maybe the students can go, well, gosh, I don't look like a typical scientist, but there's, but there's a person that looks like me and, and he seems to be quite happy as a scientist. Maybe that also informs what they think, but you are correct that that is, that is sort of a, you know, just brushing the surface and you have to really connect with students to inspire them in that sort of minimal engagement. But that followed by an opportunity to come into a lab and to see what a lab feels like and to understand better what actually happens instead of the stereotypical things you might see on TV that are simplistic. And and, um, those are informative. I think it helps students to broaden their field of of view in terms of career options. Ron, I think you're so right. And I think this is really an inspiration for upcoming students. And talking about inspiration, both of us, David and I, we are very curious. What, What inspired you to pursue a research career in academia? You know, so it was it was medicine was was one of the options that everybody talked about. And that made a lot of sense to a lot of my my friends in high school. But it didn't appeal to me. I I, I wasn't as gregarious as I am today. I, I was quite a bit more reticent to express myself. And I felt like there was this space that, at least for me at my age, wasn't explored. I, I, I was around plants. My I didn't grow up on a farm or anything like this. I grew up in a tropical island in the Caribbean. Um, but early on, I, I realized that biology was really fascinating and beyond just sort of medicine, plants and the engagement between plants and insects or plants and, and, and animals in terms of pollination and these interorganismal relationships were quite, quite fascinating to me. And just the nature of how two organisms relied on each other for, for survival, um, what cues, what things led to those relationships were quite fascinating to me early on. And, and I had a, a professor, a teacher, who inspired in me sort of sense of accountability. Up until that time, I, I thought of myself as an athlete and I didn't really care much about schoolwork. But this, this one um, biology teacher told me that, you know, she knew I could do really good work in the, in the classroom and, and she was going to hold me accountable and I should hold myself accountable as well. And once I kind of identified or, or in my mind saw myself as a, a good student or, you know, then the doors opened and I felt like, well, there's no reason for me not to, to, to work really hard pursuing my passion and my interest in biology. And that led me to, well, if two organisms can interact in a positive way, then of course they can interact in a negative way, which led me to this idea of diseases and plant diseases. And, and I thought it was quite fascinating that plants were still here and they were under attack and and, and, and there had to be a group of people out there who were studying this phenomenon because it was really important. And so fast forward 30 or so years, I still find it as fascinating today as it did back then. Well, I think that's a key to research. If you ever find that you're not interested in your own research, maybe it's time to retire. <laughs> but, but, but clearly your passion for this comes through. And with that, our guest today has been Dr. Ron Walcott. He's the Vice Provost for Graduate Education and Dean of the Graduate School. Ron, thanks so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. I I hope that you continue this wonderful podcast. I think it serves the community really well. So if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Walcott's research, we'll have links on the podcast page. Thank you for tuning in today. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us via email at ppp at uga.edu. This podcast is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. It is supported by the University of Georgia through the Office of the Vice President for Research. <laughs> <laughs>